You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. told it to you, trusted them, you assumed it's true because they wouldn't tell you a lie, not intentionally. But so much what we know about the Bible, in many cases, is what somebody else told us that it's true. In fact, it was kind of funny, Tammy, you said that this morning. She said, where is leap of faith in the Bible? Anybody ever heard that, take a leap of faith? You go, it must be in the Bible. I mean, I've heard it my whole life. You hear it. It's not in the Bible. Some philosopher guy back in mid-1800s came up with that. Soren Kierkegaard guy or something. I, I can't remember the guy's name. It was one of those fellows. I believe that's correct. But he came up with that leap of faith. See, you can't believe that. I told you it's true. You don't even know if it's true. Go and check it out. But it ain't in the Bible, I'm going to tell you that. We look for it. It's not there. It talks about how our faith is built, what our faith is built upon, but there's no leap of faith. We talk about these things in the Bible that we think are, are um, the, let, me, let me start over. If you would listen to people in the world, in the media, they would tell you that it takes a lot of faith to believe the Bible. But I would say it takes a lot of faith to believe evolution. I mean, you're going to tell me that a, a, a single-celled whatever became a fish, became a whale, became a man? It's not possible. It's impossible. It'd be the same thing as taking a whole bunch of parts, a whole bunch of just metal atoms, putting it in a bucket, and shaking it up, and it coming out this watch or an airplane. It's not even possible. But that's what evolution teaches. Nothing becomes something. The only way nothing becomes something is when God speaks it. And he says, let there be light, and there is light. He says, let there be an animal. Let there be birds in the sky. Let there be fish in the sea. Poof, fish, birds, whatever. There is no other critters between amoeba and frog. There's amoeba and there's frog, but there ain't nothing in between. So it takes a lot of faith to be an atheist, or not an atheist, but a, an evolutionist, truly. To, to buy that. And they can twist it all they want. But when we go back to God's word, what we have is we have eyewitnesses to the event that Christ was in fact alive. They knew him. Some of his brothers and sisters, James, his brother, is writing this book. I was there. I didn't believe it myself, but he is the son of God. I was there. I saw him on the cross. I saw him resurrected. He writes a book, the book of James. Peter, from the time he was a young man, we always saw these pictures, you know, um, a lot of people, uh, when we think of the apostles, we think of someone that looks, I always think of Lynn Davis because he kind of looks like an apostle there. He's got the long hair and the big beard, you know, right? And he was one of the apostles. Jesus didn't pick old men, but we assume the apostles were old because we only have pictures that people painted or did. Can we turn that down a little? Um, that people painted or did of old men sitting at his feet. It wasn't old men. The guys, these rabbis would take young men. You can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? There's a truth to that. They just can't grab it. But I can take a 13, 15-year-old guy and teach him all kind of stuff. And so these guys, we, we mock Peter for the foolish things that he says and things like that. But the reality, he was a very young person, probably 13 to 15 years old. And this rabbi, these rabbis would take these young guys and take them and lead them around, show them stuff. There was other rabbis in the land. Jesus was seen as a rabbi by those people. And in here he had these young guys that he's leading around. He's taking them and showing them stuff. And they're like, Jesus is the man. He's the man. He's the man. He's the boss. He's the rabbi. I do what he says. Paul's rabbi, if you remember, his name was Gamaliel. 
Paul was taken on when he was 13 to 15 years old by Gamaliel, and they led him around and they showed him the, he, they showed him the way of the law. And so Jesus did the same thing. So Peter saw this, James saw this, John saw this, and they wrote it down. First person eyewitnesses. Everyone after them can only say what they heard Peter say. Peter wrote it down. So we've got to be very careful when we look at traditions and things like that. It's good to have traditions, but let's see where it's based. You know, you could take Chris, uh, Christmas or Easter and you go see where they're based. They're not based on anything biblical. And you can celebrate it or not, that's, that's up to you. But the reality is we believe that Christmas is something we should celebrate every Christmas because that's what somebody told us. Our parents told us that and we trusted them. They also told us Santa Claus was real. So, JJ, sorry. It ain't true. <laughs> JJ still believes it. She's got a young heart, though. Um, so in things like that, we lose faith in what people say, but we can trust that what the Bible says is true. And in, even there in 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about over 500 witnesses, these were actual eyewitnesses to the event. You can trust what they say to be true. So be careful when you hear it from other men. That's what we kind of talked about last week. And Peter just keeps reminding, I write this to remind you. I'm telling this, this is my last words. I'm fixing to die, but I want to tell you this so that you remember that this is true, that this is really what's going on, what's, what happened. I was there. I saw him transfigured before me. I saw Elijah. I saw Moses. I saw God speak. I heard him speak. And he said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And so I heard him and I wrote it down. Okay. So 2 Peter 1.19, it says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. We're in 2 Peter, by the way, if I didn't say that. We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. How many times was the message of the gospel preached to you? Some of you people accepted Christ as older people, younger people. How many times was it preached to you till you grabbed it? Some people didn't get saved here or somebody else certainly didn't act as, as saved people until they were in their 20s or 30s or maybe 50. Or in, like in Vinny's case over there, he was in mid-60s. Or Ray, he was in his 60s, right? And it finally, the light comes on. He's like, Jesus is the Messiah. 60 years old. And then his life has changed from 60 on. Um, how many times did we have to hear it? These people heard it from Peter who was there with Christ, and they, and they blew Peter off. Think about that. We, we, I mean, it would be one thing to ignore what I said. If I gave you the gospel, you're like, well, you're just a man. You're 2,000 years removed from Christ. Yeah, but what Peter says, he was there. And he was a really good speaker. And he was really, I'm sure it came from his heart as he was like pouring it out like, man, you got to believe me. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one. And it says, you do well to heed. You do well to heed as a light in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So Hebrews, Peter, Romans, 1 John, they're all linked in this, in this way, I suppose, that you wouldn't be reading this book generally, truly. Most people, they say, well, especially when you hear people argue about, well, I've read the Bible and it's a bunch of myths and stories and blah, blah, blah. The reality is they probably read about two verses here and there, and they looked the rest up on the internet, and they just bought whatever somebody was selling on there. But if you read the Bible for yourself, and you read these first-person interviews, that's what these are, Peter, John, Matthew, Luke, these things are written that you may believe, but they're written by first-person, uh, what would you say, witnesses. And so 
these were all written in general to people that had heard the gospel or had seen some aspect of Christ alive on the earth or maybe heard a first-person account. So he's writing this in such a way that they should already be saved. They should already be believers. And being believers, they should be growing spiritually. All those books kind of assume that that person would already be saved and the, they're, they're asking these questions. If you're saved, how come you're still living in sin? If you're saved, how come you're still committing adultery? If you're saved, how come you still have this anger issue? If you're saved, how come you have these marriage issues? And so Ephesians addresses them and Galatians addresses them. You know, Corinthians addresses those things. Romans, Hebrews, you know, if you were saved, uh, it would be a shame to trample the blood of God underfoot. They're like, oh, that's right. I was already saved. Why would I be doing things that would harm either my witness or that, that action that God had already committed in me, had already done to me? Why would I not act in a different way? I've already been saved. And so that's what Peter's kind of trying to do here is just encourage people. Um, so as a pastor or a shepherd or a fellow believer, a minister of the gospel, which all of you are, if you've been saved, well, then you should be pastoring, shepherding, ministering, and fellow believering the other people. I should be doing it for you and you should be doing it for me. We should be encouraging one another, like Peter said, in these things. If these things are yours and abound, remember those? If they're yours and abound, and if they don't abound, then your other believer friend comes up to you and goes, hey man, uh, how come you're not abounding? What, what are you missing? What's going on? What are you broken in? What are you lost in? I, call, I called Andrew the other day. I could tell he was down. What are you missing? So I go over there, and I, and I help him to abound. And then when he calls me later, and I'm having a, a bad time, I'm having a weakness in faith, then he comes to me and goes, what are you missing? What are you, what are you not abounding in? What aren't you abounding in, Loretta? What are you missing? <laughs> and then we can go and pour into that person and encourage that person in that, in that thing that they're missing. As believers, that's what we do. The world ain't going to do that for you. The world wants to see the, the church of Christ destroyed and reduced in authority and reduced in effectiveness. But as believers, this is the team. This is the team. Take care of your teammates. Okay? So that was kind of last week. So, But one thing that we can really help us to realize again, build our faith, that we know that the Bible is true and what it talks about is because it never glosses over the failures of men. When you read God's Word, even if God is using this man in a great way, Job, Lot, uh, Moses, Noah, Abraham, He's got all these positives, but at the same time, they got all these negatives. It doesn't just demonstrate the positives of these people. It shows both. Even the women of God, Sarah or Rachel or Leah or these Old Testament women, it always, it generally shows both the negatives and the positives of the person, but God uses them anyway. And it's uh, in this chapter in 2 Peter, there's three patriarchs, for lack of a better word, of God's word, three Old Testament men that God uses. And when you see them, you're like, how could God use those jokers? Well, at least two of them. But then I ask you the question, how could God use you? How could God use me? If you really knew what I was, you'd be like, oh man. I mean, you're probably already asking that. How does God use Dale? But if you really knew what I was, especially when I was younger, you'd be like, how does God use that guy? It's hard to answer. It's a hard question. Let's read this Second Peter chapter 2. I want to start at verse 4. We might go back and, and work, because we're going to work on the false prophet thing there later, false teachers, but I want to start at verse 4. 2 Peter 2, verse 4. 
For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise authority. They're presumptuous, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. We're talking about supernatural things there, that dignitary's word is. Wherefore, angels who are greater in power and might... Do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. I want to skip down there. Go to verse 15. These, these wicked people, full of adultery and so on, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of this prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom it's reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they are allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her own wallowing in the mire. So we got three men here. We have Noah, verse 5. We have uh, Lot, verse 7, and we have Balaam there in verse 15. Uh, and we don't really think about how these could um, all be really men of God that could be used by God, but I want to try and show you that this morning. And I want you to kind of measure yourself against these. So these patriarchs, as, as you would say, or they would have said in the Bible, they would have called them patriarchs because they were the fathers of the Old Testament that we relate to in the New Testament. But they have the same weaknesses that men have now. Um, but God saved men through them despite their wickednesses. God saved men through Noah, Lot, and Balaam. He purified men through Noah, Lot, and Balaam. And it's kind of a strange thing. And I asked a guy yesterday, I said, was Balaam a saved man? If you remember the story of Balaam. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Balaam and the donkey. And then the angel stands in the road with the sword and, and the donkey speaks. Balaam's, it's, it's kind of funny. Balaam whips his donkey and the donkey turns around and says, haven't I always been a good donkey to you? It's like so hilarious that it's, it's kind of hard to put your mind around, but it was Lord speaking there, of course. But uh, So if you look at them, you can see the progressive nature of their rescues, but also of their sinfulness. Of Noah, it says, but God saved Noah. He didn't spare the angels who sinned, verse 4. He did not spare the ancient world, verse 5, but he saved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and eight souls. 
one of eight souls, a preacher of righteousness. He brought the flood on the whole earth. But Noah was saved. The whole earth had rejected the Lord, the Creator. They worshipped the angelic realm. They were whatever they were doing with the Nephilim there and cross uh, whatever, making these men of renown, these men of old, these men of renown, these abnormally large super beings. The angelic realm has fallen. It's tried to influence men in this way. It's all satanic in that, trying, trying to pit men against God and that kind of thing, trying to make no way for a redeemer to come. And there's one man, Noah, who was perfect in his generations. His blood was untainted by this, by this angelic realm, the sons of God that came down to the daughters of men, and he's untainted. He's the only one. That's why it says perfect in his generations. There's none of that blood in his generations. And through him, God disciplines the earth, but he also saves men. He saves eight. He saves a remnant. Then you have um, the specific judgment on the two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6. And it calls Lot righteous, which is so mind-blowing. We'll talk about that in a second. And then last, Balaam, who brings God's punishment to a percentage of Israel. And we see Balaam as a godless man, but I want to show you this morning that he knew God. He calls the Lord his God. Anyway, hard to believe. Anyway, so the people, they, they fall. They, they fall for these Midianite women, these Canaanite women, and they weren't supposed to be with them, and that was Balaam's trick on them. And I had to marvel at just two of these. Noah, he was a man perfect in his generations. He, he messed up and got drunk there after the, after the flood, after the salvation was complete. And that's a good picture for us there about the redemptive process of God. Look at King David. At the end of his life, he still does that census and 70,000 people have to die for God to get his attention. But God never rejects David. I want you to see this. I want you to see this as people, fallen people, as we stand before God and we say, well, I've sinned too much or I've gone too far or I have a sin that can't be forgiven, the unforgivable sin, I've blasphemed God's name or whatever. It's not possible. If God can save Lot, if God can save Balaam, God can save you. You haven't done that, I promise you. You haven't done what Lot has done. You haven't done what Balaam has done. And likely you haven't done what Noah has done. So if I look at those two, we'll just skip Noah because he was such a good guy, but in general. Lot chose to live in a really debauched area. He had the opportunity to live in a good place, even with Abraham, but he chose to live in a bad place, this area called the Valley of Shinar. That's in Genesis 13 through 19, chapters 13 through 19, if you want to read that story about Lot. And what those cities were like, they were, they were like the worst aspects of the big cities that we have today. They were violent, very sexually immoral, um, very wicked, people taking advantage of each other financially. In fact, the men of the city mock Lot and say, you came here, basically calling him a goody two-shoes, you came here as a goody two-shoes, you immediately went and sat in the gate and began to judge people because he didn't live like they lived. He knew it was wrong. Even though he was there, he liked some aspects of the city life, probably the production of it or, or the fact that you can go to the store and buy a fresh avocado versus having to go try to grow one out in the desert, right? And so he liked some aspect of cities. That happens to people today. Christians today move to large cities because they like the amenities of the cities. And what they do is they overlook the wickedness of the city. But when negative things happen in cities, it becomes very dangerous. And look what's happening right now. You can see it all across the United States. People are leaving large, 
uh, suburban areas and moving to rural areas. Why? Because of crime, because of violence, because of sexual immorality. They can't stand it anymore. They can, they've seen enough because of taxes, which is corruption amongst city governments as they take from those that are rightfully producing. They're taking something. It's, it's just legal stealing what they're doing. And it says right here, for he delivered, verse 7, he delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. But he stayed. If you're surrounded by wickedness, flee. <laughs> but he stayed. But God still counted him righteous. This is Lot. I will give to you what Lot did. I mean, like, how can God consider Lot righteous? He had this low mindset of himself that he would stay in that place because of what it offered to him that was positive in his mind. His testimony was so tainted that when he goes to his son-in-laws, think about this, he's living in the city, he's living like the city people, but he considers himself saved. His testimony is so tainted when he goes to his son-in-laws, they think he's joking. He goes to his son-in-laws, he's like, hey, we got to leave this city. These angels are here, they're fixing to destroy this place. We got to leave. And they're like, yeah, whatever, old man, get out of here. Because his, his testimony was tainted. It was worthless because they'd seen him act just like the city people. Why wouldn't you be destroyed with them? You act just like them. You drink like them. You watch the same stuff. You go to the same places. You, you ride the same camel brand, whatever. Smoke the same camels, whatever. You're, you're doing the same thing that they're doing. Why would, you get a, why would you get a pass? I'm telling you, God's destruction has come on the city. Maybe I didn't tell you this before, but I'm telling you now. This happened to me in the military when I was young. I lived so carnally that we were about to go, I've told you this before maybe, but we were about to go on a raid and it was a very dangerous situation and I went and told this other guy and I started to try and give him the gospel because he had asked me a question before. And as I was giving him the gospel, I said, man, listen, I know starting out that I have not lived this way, but I'm telling you there is a God. There is a God, there's a creator, and there's a man named Jesus Christ, and he came to save us. It's God's son, and I start going through that thing. And I start to cry, and he's like, what are you crying for, man? Are you afraid? I'm not afraid. But I know that if I die, I'll go to heaven, but if you die, you're doomed. And he's like, it's going to be okay, man. I said, get off me. I'm telling you, you're the one in peril. But I was so corrupted that he wouldn't hear me because he had seen how I lived, and I lived just like everybody else. Why am I going to listen to you? You live just like we live. Drink as much, cuss as much, act as negative, do as terrible, beat up more people, whatever. You're a terrible person. Why am I going to take what you say as the gospel? Okay, you're right. I was ashamed. I was ashamed when I walked away from that guy. And Lot was ashamed when he walked away from his son-in-laws and left them to their death. Because his testimony was so destroyed that they wouldn't hear him. What about you? You can answer that for yourself. So Lot escapes the city. His wife, he's had no witness on his wife. His wife has played both, both sides. She's lived as a city girl. Uh, we used to call her uh, fast. She was a fast lady. She, she was living big. She was living as a, uh, a sporty gal. <laughs> she was a sporty gal. Um, uh, she was doing more than she should be doing. She was involved in the city. 
And when it says she turned back and looked at the city and she was turned to a pillar of salt, it's that impression of, you know, the angels grab Lot and his daughters and they drag them out of the city. He's still like, well, let me get one more. Let me get one. And they're like, man, get out of here now. We're fixing to destroy the place. They drag them out and the wife's like, you know, looking longingly, surely they're not going to burn Nashville down. What's the main street there? They're not going to burn Broad Street down, are they? The Ryman? The Hard Rock Cafe? Whatever else is down. I don't even know. I haven't been down there in years. But you know what I'm saying? The things that we like about I hadn't been down there in a long time. Um, surely God wouldn't destroy that. There's good, there's good people that go down there. Yeah, there is. But they're all tainted. And God says, enough. And in, in that waiting, she's within the ring of fire, whatever came down there and, and with fire and brimstone and sulfur and all that stuff, whatever fell like a nuclear blast and melted them so that it could never be inhabited again, she was too close. Salt for you. And then Lot goes off. So he had no influence on his wife. Then he goes off and he has relations with both of his daughters in drunkenness. And what does he produce? He produces two nations, Moab and Ammon. Both nations are ungodly. So he doesn't even have an influence on his grandkids. He is a wretched man. God calls him righteous right here. Are you better than Lot? Man, I hope so. Then there's, it says in Genesis 19, verse 16, might be the key verse in there where it said, God, the Lord, it says the Lord being merciful to him, to Lot, and then it talks about those guys grabbing him by his hands and pulling him out. That's how good God is to one that he considers righteous. The Lord was Lot's Lord. The Lord was Noah's Lord. And so he took him by the hand and he put him in the ark and it says the Lord sealed the door. Noah didn't close the door. The Lord closed the door. The Lord sealed the door with pitch, which we learned already was the same word for atonement. With his atonement, he closed the door. Look at Balaam. Balaam's a low-down, dirty dog. He's got these personal conversations. I want you to go to Numbers right here, and i got to show you this, because my whole life, or any, any time in thinking about that, and like I said, I asked a guy the other day, is Balaam saved? And that's the wrong question that we, we ask of people often. I bet that guy's not even saved. So these, these kings go to Balaam and they want Balaam to, to issue a curse. He's considered a diviner or a sorcerer, depending on your translation. But he was a prophet. And he was a prophet of the Lord. So depending on your view of a prophet, if you're a non-Christian person, you came and, they, and, and they'll say to me, they'll, they'll call me Padre. People that have Catholic background, they'll call me Padre. I'm no, I'm no Padre. You know, or they'll call me bishop. I've had a guy call me bishop. Because in the, in, the, in the black churches, a lot of times the pastor, they'll call him a bishop or the honorable apostle. I'm not, I'm not those things. But that's their view of, they got the wrong uh, label to put on me what I do, what I am. I'm a pastor or a shepherd, but I'm not a bishop. I guess I am a bishop in the traditional senses. It's the same word, shepherd, but the way they mean it. So they call him a a, uh, a seer, or however they call him, however they refer to him, but it's their view of who he is. And so they go to him and offer him money to say a curse against the Israelites and to promote 
the Moabites. Now Balak, chapter 22, now Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites and he was exceedingly afraid of the people. And so they go to um, Balaam, verse 5, they sent messengers to Balaam the son of Baor. This people's come from Egypt, they're covering the land, say a curse. 22 verse 18. Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. I can't do anything that God doesn't tell me I can do. He had an understanding of who God was. He had a relationship with God. Though he was a fallen man, he knew God. God came to Balaam, verse 20, and the night, and he said to him, if the men come and call you, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So he gets his donkey, and he has in his mind, that's what's going on there, he has in his mind that God said I could go, so I'm going to go do what I do and collect my money. And then we have the angel of the Lord standing before the donkey and turning him aside and so on. And uh, it's, i got to read it to you because it's so funny. 27, then the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. She lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times, you bully? And Balaam said to the donkey, I mean, how dumb do you feel? I mean, I, I have yelled at livestock before. I cannot tell a lie. But Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me, you stupid donkey, I wish there was a sword in my hand. Now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he answered, no. And then the Lord opens Balaam's eyes, and he sees the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword, and he bows his head and fell flat on, the face, on his face. Why have you struck your donkey these three times, Balaam, you big bully? Verse 35, then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with these men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. And from there on, truly, um, that's exactly what Balaam does. He only speaks the word that God tells him to speak. He only speaks blessings. But in Second Peter, he's called. Uh, it talks about him as speaking unrighteousness, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. He wouldn't have gone if he wasn't tempted by the dinero, by the money, by the currency. He wouldn't have gone. But he was tempted, and God said, okay, you know what? I got a, I got a plan. I'm going to work something anyway, and I'm going to use you, Balaam. What really needed to happen was God's people needed to be tested, and when they were tested, they proved that they were disloyal, that they didn't know the God who saved them. And like 24,000 passed away. But Balaam served a purchase, no a purpose, no matter how wicked he was. And so when I say I couldn't really testify that Balaam was saved, I, actually, I believe I could. But Balaam was a failed man. He was a weak man. He had a temptation. And temptation for Balaam was money. The temptation for Lot might have been status or, or sensuality, however that city, whatever was going on there, that he just had to be a part of. And so there's a strong word of warning here in Second Peter. All three of these men, they were actual people who actually lived in an actual time. They were real people. Sodom and Gomorrah has been researched now, and they find these, these sulfur, sulfur balls. They've, I've seen a couple of them at the museum down there in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. But they're like between softball size and bigger. 
melted sulfur. And they've split these things apart. You can find all kinds of stuff on YouTube about that. But the guy's name was uh, Ron Wyatt, and he was in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. He used his own money to go research that and stuff back in the 60s and 70s. And they got pictures, and they've had people there recently. And they say that place has absolutely been melted, and they consider it like a nuclear explosion is what went on because it actually melted the rock and melted the sulfur and all that stuff. Okay. It was a real place. The flood, the flood really happened because there's flood evidence all over the world. There's animals and people buried in sediment made into fossils all over the world. There's flood damage all over the world. There's seashells on the top of Mount Everest. There's shark teeth on the top of Mount Everest that they found. That means it was covered with water at one time. You can't have 30-odd thousand feet of water on Mount Everest and two inches of water somewhere else. It covers, water doesn't do that. It doesn't go like this. It goes like this. The whole earth was covered to 15, what does it say, stadia or something, above the top of the highest mountain for a long way. It was deep. It covered everything. It happened. And what happened to Lot happened, and what happened to Balaam happened. It really happened. So this word was, all these guys were given very specific warnings by God, or one of his representatives, to avoid their own destruction, to be obedient to him, and to potentially rescue others that were unaware of their lost condition. All three of these guys were responsible for people gaining salvation, so to speak, before God. The eight of Noah, though that was all that was left that was holy, or those of Lot of his family and the two nations that came from him, or those of uh, what Balaam did, those after they came to their senses and these Midianite women had, had led them astray, and the rest of them recovered from these bites. There were some serpents that bit them, and they had to look on the pole with the serpent on it. That's the end of that story. Um, that's in Numbers, by the way, 24. It goes on to about chapter 28, and you can find that whole story there in Numbers. But when you see God working, he was using Balaam. We see him as this terrible guy. But if you read what he said, he only gave blessings to the people of Israel. But what he did do was he spoke out loud to the Moabite kings, uh, Midianite Moabite kings, he said, the way that you would tempt them is with these Canaanite women. And that he, he just wanted to get paid. Did it make him less saved? It's a hard answer to, to a hard question to answer. I don't know if it's ours to answer, really. I think we take that on ourselves a lot to try to answer that question about people. It's, none of our, it's not ours to answer. That's the, the Father in heaven. That's what he does. He's the sifter. He's the one that separates the wheat from the tares. He tells us, just keep planting. The angels will do the separation later. You just keep planting. Okay. It says, uh, 2 Peter 2.19, for by whom a person is overcome. They promise them liberty. So when thinking about the negatives here, all these guys, they all did relatively positive things. It says of Noah, those that were rescued by him, and he rescues the animals, and he, he's obedient to God in the time on the, on the great deep or whatever. And then of Lot, where he goes immediately to the city. If you read that story of Lot, you'll see that those guys demeaned him, and they actually tried to attack him sexually, and the angels rescued him, and they demeaned him. And they said, you came to our city, and you tried to boss us around and tell us what was the right way. So he actually had, both, uh, he had positive traits in trying to turn the city, but the city was beyond help. And even Balaam in the blessing of God's people and being obedient to God when he saw that his life was in peril. And people were saved. 
Those that did not turn to the Midianite women, their faith in God was strengthened as they saw God's powerful hand of judgment on the people and they realized he's the same one that rescued us 40 years ago. He's the same one or 30 years ago or 20 years ago or however long it was. He's the same God. He's still working. We hadn't heard from him in a while. We kind of preferred not to hear from him in the fiery snake thing here, but we have heard from him now and he's still the same God. And it gave him faith and it gave him that next faith steps to keep going down the road there. I saw this right here. Well, let me, let me tell you this first. So a person who has, uh, so by these temptations, by these false words given by, by men that are failed, even good men, even men we trust, even men we love, they can give us a, they can give us a bad word. But bad people can give us a bad word too. Both are options for us every day. We can study to show ourselves approved unto God. A workman needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, correctly understanding. That's what it means, rightly dividing. doesn't mean cutting in half. It means opening it up, reading the word, and seeing what the definition is and applying that. We can do that. We have this option every day. Or we can follow what men say, the worldly wisdom like it talks about in Corinthians. We have that option every day to walk godly or to not walk godly. And many people think that they're above these kind of temptations that these men fell in with the Midianite women. They must have been some good-looking women. Of course, you're in the desert. It's lonely, dusty, and stuff. If they were just clean, it was probably like, wow, those are some good-looking women. But whatever, whatever the temptation, there's no temptation which has overtaken you except which is common to man. God is faithful with the temptation. He'll provide a means of escape. But it's still a temptation. There's temptations every day for godly people. It could be a financial one, it could be a sexual one, it could be a food one, whatever the thing is. It could be anything. I don't know what the thing is that trips you up. And a lot of times we're not aware of it until it's already got us. And then we're like, oh, I goofed. And that's where confession of sin comes back and, and restoration with God. But we all possess these weaknesses that would be really easy to be exploited either by the evil one who has over how many centuries of practice tripping up godly men and women or from people that we don't want to disappoint. It could be from a friend or it can be from a negative kind of friendship. And a lot of times we do stuff because we don't want to disappoint someone. Look at Adam and Eve. He didn't want to disappoint Eve. He didn't want Eve to die alone. And he had the option. He knew what Eve had done was wrong. He had the option, do I choose Eve or I choose God? To be fair, she didn't have clothes on. That'll mess up a man's thinking. But in looking at her, he had the choice, Eve or what the Lord says. And he chooses Eve to his own death. He doesn't have the faith that God could have replaced Eve or done something else. He's like, it's got to be Eve. She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So there's been millions of good God-fearing people that have fallen because of a false teacher, an unsatisfied hope or some... Um, sensual desire that they just couldn't overcome. They were unable to subdue it. But does it mean that that same person is hopelessly lost before God? It's, that's what we got to consider. That's what he's asking right here. And I don't believe so. I believe we got to be careful in that. Numbers 21 has got this little short story about this guy named King Arad, A-R-A-D. And he captures and enslaves some Israelites. So they're passing through his land. He just snags some of them. The people immediately go to God and they pray and ask that those people be uh, restored and that King Arad be destroyed. The people recovered, King Arad destroyed. And God hears them and he restores the people and he destroys the king. 
And I wonder if this is a better opportunity for us to see as believers today who, as we see other believers caught in the world system by King Arad, he captured them, don't you see? They were believers. They're walking in the way. Maybe they're weak-willed. Maybe they're immature. Maybe they're young. And they stumble and they get captured over here by the world system. And part of our ministry should be to go, to ask God, to help us, to deliver these people that have been caught in the world system by the Arad of the world and bring them back into the body, back into the path, into the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He, we want to ask the Lord to give back those that the world has enslaved. It could be a good ministry for anyone. I read about a lady that was... Um, uh, she had, she had had real bad problems with drugs in the past, but then she went to prison for a time and got saved there, got out, kind of cleaned up her life, and, and eventually became a music leader at a church in France, and then eventually came back to the United States and doing ministry in, in prisons for women. And just how she was using, going back to the prisons, helping these women recover from that. She had been rescued from slavery herself, and then she went to where the slaves were and started trying to pull them slaves out of there, bringing them to freedom, bringing them to freedom. That's part of the game as believers. It's part of what was it's the battle. It's not a game. It's not light-hearted. It's a negative. But what's part of the battle is that we go and we rescue the enslaved. We go into the POW camp that is the world, and we, we cut a hole in the fence and we drag them through the hole. It's what we got to do. And I, I just... I just tell you that. we got to be careful. I'm not giving people a license to sin like, well, you'll never lose your place with the Father. I believe you'll never lose your place with the Father. Now, don't sin. And if you do sin, get, restor get restored immediately. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It says that we're easily taken into bondage. While they promise them liberty... They themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. It's the man that's been freed from prison that has the prison mindset. He keeps using the prison words. He keeps using those words like, I, I, I dealt, I've dealt with this with these, these jailbird guys, and they always are going back to these words like um, um, respect. Oh, I came in there, and this guy, he was there. He's an older guy, and you got to respect, and you got to have all the... they got all these prison rules, right? You can't look him in the eye. Black guy can't talk to white guy. White guy can't talk to Mexican guy. they got all these rules, right? Those rules don't apply. We're free people. If you're free, live like a free person. Don't become enslaved to the thing that you were freed from. If you were freed from the, from the penalty of sin, then live as a free person. In fact, go and rescue other people that are enslaved. That's a good song. Remember that song, No Longer a Slave to Fear? It ought to say, I'm no longer a slave to sin because I'm a child of God. Sin no longer has a hold on me. But if it's still got a hold on you, something's wrong. You either don't understand who your father is or you just like the sin so much you're not willing to let it go. Well, let it go. The man and woman of God. So there's a road. There's two ends to the road. We got the father's house on one side and we got the pig pen on the other. Everybody's on this road and they're going one direction or the other. There's people that are children of the most high God and they're walking towards the pigsty. And there's people that are in the pigsty 
that have come to their senses and are walking back towards the father's house. And there's also pigs that are coming out of the pigsty that thinks it looks better over there, but they're not truly children of God. And there's people all up and down this road. And the reality of the proof is, is that in time a person will come to their senses when they're in the pigsty. They will come to their senses and they'll be like, why am I staying here when I belong to the Father? And there was this question this guy asked. I, I told him at the rescue mission the other night. But what would have happened if the prodigal son had died in the pigsty? I think I mentioned this last week maybe. What would have happened if he died in the pigsty? What if the prodigal son the son of the father, what if he had died while he was still in the pigsty? You got me? Does he become a pig or is he still a son? He's still a son. Balaam was still a son. Lot was still a son. He's righteous because God declared him righteous, because he was obedient in righteousness. If you know the son and he makes you free indeed, then you belong to the father. Your children join heirs with Christ. Children of the most high God join heirs with Christ. If you belong to the father, you're his. Even if you're messing up royally. David, at the end of his life in that census thing, you're like, his main general's like, don't do it. You know we're not supposed to take a census. Yeah, take a census. You know we're not supposed to take a census. I said, go, okay, take a census. 70,000 people got to die for David to come to his senses and get back out of the sty and start walking back to the father's house. But he never lost his sonship. There are those that are still in the sty and they're, they're super miserable believers. They're super miserable. They don't know why they're miserable, but they're in the sty and they're wanting the father to come in the sty with them and that's not what he does. You left his territory. Go back to where his territory is. You're welcome all day long. He'll put a new suit of clothes on you. He'll feed you at the table. He'll, he'll treat you like a son. But there's also fakers in the house of God, and that's the truth. And they still want to, they want what's in the sty. They're willing to hang out here because it probably smells better or something. But when it comes down to it, their heart has never been converted, and they've never become sons of God. So if you're in the sty, come home. And let the Father clean you up. If you're a son, you just got to take the blinders off for a second. Stop, you know, the, the rule of holes or whatever. If you're in the hole, stop digging. Find yourself in a hole, quit digging. You know, pull some dirt back in and climb out. I was just thinking about these people in the Bible, like Balaam or Lot or Job or Peter, who rejects the Lord, says he has no part with him or David, or King Saul, or King Solomon, who was worshiping all these idols. But I, I don't believe that they're lost because they knew the Father. And I don't believe that he rejects a son. If you're his son, if you're his child, you're his child. And no more, if you're not his child, if you're a pig and you're in the pig pen and that's where you like it, well, I don't know what to tell you. You're in the wrong neighborhood. You're going to be uncomfortable in the house of God. But if you're in the house of God, and this is where you find the, the, the peace and patience and kindness and long-suffering and gentleness and self-control and all those things, love, you find those here, this is where you belong. You don't belong in the pigsty. I pray that you don't die in the pigsty, myself included, because temptations happen and people trip and fall in those things. Second Peter 2, and it said 21, it says, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. 
But it happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his vomit, a sow having washed to her wallow. You're going to live in what you are. A person can be overcome by sin's bondage, but it doesn't make them less of a son. It doesn't give you a pass to go and sin. In fact, Jesus told the woman, go and sin no more. As much as possible with you, go and sin no more. Remain close to the Father. I think if I had to kind of give you the, the single part of what all of Second Peter is about, First and Second Peter both is, you're a believer. Number one, you're a believer. Number two, keep growing spiritually. That's what it comes down to. If you've been in the sty, then turn and start walking back to the Father's house. He's going to run and meet you at the border. As soon as you get there, he's going to meet you. As soon as you turn around and head back, he's going to meet you, reclothe you. Um, remember those things, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Work on those things. Be developed in those things as you're studying the word and becoming closer to him. It's just a great admonition and a great encouragement to, number one, keep believing, that's Peter, and number two, keep growing spiritually. All right. Well, I hope that was helpful to you this morning. I, I really was struggling with that scripture because there's so much going on, but there's two or three different principles there. Maybe we can just focus on that one. We'll focus on another one another time maybe. But, but if you're here today and you've heard the word, you know it to be true, it can be trusted because it's God's word. It's not Dale's word. So go and be a good Berean and study the word and make sure that what I told you is the truth. Then apply it to your life. Keep believing. Keep growing spiritually. Okay? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning in, in humility and ask that you, you save us. And we think about Noah and, and Lot and Balaam and all those people that you saved. Though some were judged, others were saved. I pray that these here would be saved. I pray for our country, Lord, and for our county and our, our local governments, our state governments, those in authority over us and our, our national government, Lord. I pray that those people would repent, Lord, that their hearts would be softened towards the truths of your word, Lord, that their eyes would be open like the Ninevites and that we'd have a hundred more years. But if not, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for these here at Plant Grow Harvest, for those that we'll witness to and minister to this week, Lord. I pray for the schools and the little all the, the teachers we have here, the influence they have over the students for these children that were here today, Lord, have mercy on them. I pray that you rescue them from that, that um, flood of iniquity that exists over there in the public housing and so on. I, I pray that you would rescue them from the negative things that could potentially happen to them. Lord, I pray for the minds and hearts of the adults here, Lord, that they would seek your face while it could still be found, that they would apply your word to their, to their hearts that they may not sin against you, Lord. I pray that you would make us even more faithful sons and daughters of the Most High, Lord, that we would understand what it means to be loved by you. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord, your long-suffering towards us. I pray as people go out and do different things today that they'll recognize today as a day of godliness towards you. They would encourage others with the, the faith that they, can, that, they, that they have. Help us, Lord, to do your will, to be obedient to you, and we'll give you all honor, glory, and praise for the good things that you do to us and for us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.